it's almost a hard mindset to imagine that we could, I, oh, I can say I'm sick. Like it's up to me to say that there's something wrong. I don't need you, doctor, so-and-so to confirm that. And that switches when, you know, really the stethoscope being a big marking point in this time, and then the progression toward more and more technology, it's the doctor becomes the authority. And that was what interested me about this, the King's Touch was like, right, there is this kind of thing through history of there is a person who has the capability to offer healing and I, I put myself in your hands. Throughout history, the great questions have been asked and great research has been undertaken, always expanding the territory of the known by shining a light into the unknown. Where is that cutting edge today? And can a community of people from all over the world, each carrying their own unique journey of discovery, come together to inquire at the edge of purposeful evolution through conversation? At Portals of Perception, we think it is possible, and we hope that you will choose to be a part of this exploration. There was, perhaps, a time when the only tool of healing was the human hand. And to this very day, whenever we have an unfamiliar feeling in our body, the first thing we do is touch the area it is arising from and perform our simple initial diagnosis. Today, however, we hear advertising touting the touchless world we live in. How did we get here? And is this where we want to be, or is there a better way? In this conversation, Aviv Shahar speaks with Jessica Wapner, who traces the arc of touch as a healing modality through the centuries, and how it has gradually been removed from our ever more standardized methods of health care. And then she gives us a peek into where we might go next. Join us. Welcome to Portals of Perception, where we ask and inquire at the edge of what we know to explore and find new perceptions. Perceptions about this time and about where does the future come from. Today we are exploring with Jessica Wapner. And we are interested with Jessica to inquire about the trace of touch and the place of touch in healing and in medicine. And Jessica, will you introduce yourself, please, and share a little bit about how you came to this inquiry about touch and some of your work in journalism and the books that you published? Sure. So, hello. My name is Jessica Wapner, and I work as a science journalist. That's work that I've been doing for about 13 years. And I've written for many different magazines, Scientific American, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, Wired, The New Yorker, and several other places. And I've also written two books under my own name and also ghostwritten a book. So my first book, The Philadelphia Chromosome, which came out in 2013, told the story behind a breakthrough cancer drug, looking at way back in time at how the science behind it was uncovered and the ups and downs of dealing with the pharmaceutical industry and patients and everything else that went into creating this drug. And I also ghost wrote a book on food allergy research that came out in 2020. And my third book, Wall Disease, looks at the psychological toll of living up against a border. So looking at border regions around the world and the ways in which people who are living right at those places are coping, what they're suffering from and how they're coping with the unique problems attached to these specific places. So could you synthesize what is wall disease? What is the impact that you have discovered in, in this inquiry? So it's, it's multidimensional. It expresses itself in different ways, such as the feeling of being oppressed. You know, when you see a wall near you every day, or even a steel barriers that are, you can see through, a sense of 
as one person I spoke with put it to me, that your life is being stopped here. So that's the end. There's a lot of othering that border walls create, this sense that the people on the other side are the other. And so in that sense, you can understand wall disease as it's not just those who you might understand as being oppressed, right? Who we can visibly, physically see are oppressed in terms of their financial status, the danger that they live in, but anyone who feels a sense of fear about what's on the other side of the wall suffers from some form of wall disease. So where there's a wall separating rich from poor, wall disease is on both sides. There's also in a lot of depression, which has been measured. It's not just like a theory. You know, there's people who have seen that there's higher rates of antidepressant prescriptions clustered around people living near border walls, for example. These regions are often also forgotten areas. And so people end up having to engage in quite dangerous livelihoods because governments, for whatever reason, tend to not pay much attention to these areas, you know, to do with probably their constituency isn't isn't to be found there. So yeah, it's it's very multidimensional. What I added up from it is is that certainly we all carry a little bit of wall disease in us because we all have a bit of a sense of that borders between nations are real, you know, and the fear of you can look at the fear of what happens if you lose your passport, you know, and how much we, you know, we buy special articles of clothing to keep our passports safe and we freak out if we lose them is actually from my adding up a little example of yeah wall disease and and the premise is even if we don't live right next to a wall we've experienced many other kind of walls throughout uh, our life and experience so how did you come from that to the inquiry that centers on touch and the place of touch in healing and medicine? Uh, good question. I was trying to remember how I first started wondering about touch. And I think I came across some research that was looking at what gentle touch does in the body. And it led me down a road of inquiry. You know, that's what happens. You know, you it happens probably too much of having, you know, wanting to pursue every every curious thing that comes my way and turn it into an article. But I spoke with an editor about this interesting idea about touch and the need for touch. And I had looked at it from different angles in the world of including, for example, people who are dying in a hospital and don't get touched and how awful that is. So the editor that I was speaking with was interested in that and also interested in the whole world of wellness in general and what is this thing we call wellness and why do hospitals have wellness centers attached to them as this kind of you know appendage that is kind of part of the hospital but not really part of the hospital exactly and you have doctors who are speaking out with very skeptical perspectives against some of the practices that you find in wellness centers. And it really became something, it became apparent that this was a whole tangled knot that bared a untangling. Right. So obviously it has a um, socioeconomic side to the story. And it also has a historic and side and, and a scientific side to the story. So the multifaceted story there, what drew me when I read one of the versions of the article information was that you've gone through historic trace. And I found the historic trace to be very illuminating because it paints a picture that aligns with some of the inquiries that I'm propelled by in terms of the, the bigger inquiry of the human experience. And what can we learn about how we are different or the same when we look couple, three, four centuries back, and when we look 
even further back into ancient times, obviously with significance, with the significance of appreciating what happened around the 1600 and the Enlightenment and the introduction of the scientific method and, and the great side of it, but also the, what I will dare say, the, the not so good side of it or the shadow side of it in terms of how it created a division in the human experience. So I became interested in how you tell the story and perhaps you can lead us right to the beginning. If What's the earliest mention of touch in anything written or any document that we can trace to back in time and how is touch being viewed at that time? Right. Well, hard for me to know exactly because the dates of history are, you know, not always known. So for example, you know, you find references to ancient Egypt and what does that mean exactly since it stretched over so many years, millenniums, millennia. So there are definitely references to the hands in ancient Egypt, for sure. There are references to the hands in in ancient Greece and in ancient China and in Ayurvedic medicine, which is thousands of years old, coming back from India. So it seems that from what I can piece together, that there are references to touch coming from all over the world to do with the healing power of touch and the healing, what the hands are capable of doing. You are referencing in the copy that you shared with me that in 2600 BC, Gilgamesh pronounced his best friend's death with the words, I touch his heart, but it does not beat at all, which reveals that they have had the awareness and the knowledge of the pulse, the heartbeat, and the capacity of sensing it and accessing it by touch. Yeah, it's amazing to think of the whole, what knowledge is inherent in that statement, what you need to understand about the human body to know that if you feel a heart and it's not beating, what that signifies. And pulse is definitely the earliest Again, from what I can tell, are among the earliest uses of touch. Use, you know, in traditional Chinese medicine, of course, there's an incredible science to do with pulse taking and what you can tell about a person from their pulse and the, you know, the nine different pulses that you can feel just in the wrist alone and the art of that and how many pulses you need to take to. You write. You're right that they have 26 categories of pulses, mm-hmm. which is like letters in the alphabet, which made me very curious. What, oh, what, interesting. What? I had not put that together. Wow. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. So it's fascinating. The first thing that that immediately brings to mind, so we sing right at, uh, back in ancient times, the recognition of the, the utility of touch, both as a diagnostic tool and then also as a healing tool, two different applications of touch as yeah. part of care or the awareness of health. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think that probably, you know, many people watching this have the reference of the laying on of hands. And that is something that dates back, you know, it's as old as human life from, you know, from what, again, from what I can tell, this notion of, of that the hands carry something, that you can do things with your hands. You can offer something with your hands. And you can, as you said, it's also diagnostic. You can read things. You can detect with your hands as well. So this idea of laying on of hands, you trace back to ancient Egypt and then is manifesting in the biblical story with Moses, you're writing, uh, laying his hands on Joshua by yeah. way of transferring his power. Yes. And that's a long time before you got to travel almost, uh, I don't know, what is it, 600 or, or uh, years or more to the idea of actually healing with your hands, which is apparent in the scripture 
with some of the phenomena accompanying the, the rise of Jesus and the miracles that he is able to perform. But you are tracing the significance of touch and of hands throughout all these stories, indicating that touch and hands were very important. Yeah, yeah, I loved the reference to, now I can't remember the names at the moment, I'm sorry, The where someone is saying basically like, oh, you're healing with your hands? I want to do that. You know, I'd like to be able to do that. And But he is, uh, he's not a humble person, person who's asking this. He's not a kind of enlightened religious person. And the response is, you can't. You, you can't just do it because you want to. It depends on, you know, being right in yourself on the inside first. And uh, that I thought was very interesting because right there, it's linking that healing whatever a person can do with their hands is connected to what they're doing with their mind. What else would you add to what you already offered in terms of the significance we are finding with people in ancient times in terms of their appreciation of the the connection and their relationship between their mind or what they're joined to or the powers that are working through them and this idea that, that the hands represents some kind of important or sacred power transferred through the hands. What else are you finding about that? So I thought another really good example of that was that uh, Hippocrates would do healings with his hands in the temple of Asclepios. And no matter who, you know, what the temple it was dedicated to, the idea that you would do that in a temple, I thought was quite interesting that there is there was just this connect this connection between healing and religion. And I, I don't know that it would have even been called religion. You know, it was the gods or it was the higher powers that be, and that this was something that would work through you, not that you would be doing on your own necessarily. I mean, and of course, you know, all the examples in the New Testament that we have from the life of Jesus were certainly, you know, so much about connecting belief with healing. So what happens then when you trace through time? I imagine not much activity or advancement through the Dark Ages, but what happens then as you go through the arc of time? I don't know if you found any further trace through... uh, the Roman Empire or beyond, or what's the next milestone in this trace? Right. I mean, it's it's a great question because there is this kind of very long stretch of time when, and it's, it's partly to do with what a person can access over the internet, which is how I'm doing my research at the moment. I'm sure there are things to be found in, you know, specialized libraries that aren't readily available to do with the stretch of time between essentially zero AD and the 1600s, let's say. But there's a point at which, during medieval time, there's a point at which the idea that the monarchs can heal Hmm. um, gets introduced. So this man, Edward the Confessor, says a king can touch a person with a disease called scrofula, which was known more commonly as the king's evil. And uh, it's a form of tuberculosis outside of the lungs. And it gives a person kind of a patches, you know, it's not very appealing looking. It, it's, it's visible on the skin. And the thinking, what? The, the belief was that the king or the queen could touch a person and cause the king's evil to heal. And there is, I found it to be rather delightful accounts of this king or this queen healing people. You know, there was a, like, there's actually a, like newspaper proclamations at the time saying, you know, the queen will be offering healings up until touch, she'll touch you up until Christmas, you know, and it, re, it gets recorded as touches, you know, this king touched you know, 1600 people on Easter Sunday. And, you know, after, after Christmas, there will be no more touching until after the new year. You know, this was a, a thing that you would seek and it would be marked with a, 
a coin. A person would be given a coin to take away. And because I think in the beginning, the person would stay on, you know, behind castle walls to, until they were healed. And then uh, presumably that became too much. And so they were given a coin to take with them instead. So that paints that at that time, there are three qualities associated with touch. There is healing property associated with touch. There is some power transfer associated with touch, in this case, through the, the power of the royals and the king, the queen. And it is also viewed as a gift of some mm-hmm. sort. So a very significant element of the human experience. And what happens then as, as we come through to the 16th century and, and the Enlightenment? How is that changing the equation or not? Well, so, I mean, and it's interesting. I hadn't thought of it this way before that that the whole king's touch thing also gives touch an air of authority. Right. That it's, it gets associated with, with the authority figure in your life, that that's the person who can offer this, that it's not just anyone who can do it, which I think becomes a theme throughout the centuries that follow. In the 1600s, so, I mean, there starts to be this whole life of wellness. Medicine becomes a practice. It, it starts the, the journey toward becoming the medicine that we know of as today, that we know of today. What we recognize as medicine today, you could kind of trace back to, say, the 1600s, where something is trying to get formularized, but at the same time, there's no restriction. Anyone can be a doctor. Well, really, with the rise of the scientific method and the scientific revolution. Yes, absolutely. And, and there's this kind of interesting blend of like hodgepodge, like let's try this, let's try that. And, you know, bloodletting, of course, being, I think, one of the supreme examples that we have of a practice that, you know, held on for quite some time and, uh, and that it was the barber who did it. You know, yeah. you weren't going to the doctor for a bloodletting. And, uh, and we have, you know, copious records of all of this, which is, you know, it's just fascinating. And you look back and you think, you know, I think the prevalent viewpoint when we look back on those centuries of medicine is sort of like, oh my gosh, all that they didn't know. And there's almost a tendency to laugh at it or think it's ignorant. But then, you know, as we'll talk about more is the question of what then gets lost along the way, as things become more formularized, more professional, more linked to the scientific method. Well, and the scientific method and its rise is deeply associated with the idea of the capacity to measure things. And measurement enters the equation we did not measure up until that time. So first we develop the capacity to measure Now that we have the capacity to measure, we can measure the impact of whatever we do, and we can also introduce practices and repeatable practices and experiment and measure the results. So I'm intuiting you've done the research that the foundation of what we know as medicine today with everything has to, in the first place, be scientifically or empirically proven is traced back to that time and the interest in the inquiry and the trace of touch, how is touch being treated in this transformative ecosystem where wellness and health and medicine are taken through that revolution of it's got to be measured and it's got to be repeatable. So how is touch being treated through that? Well, it's one of the ways that it's being treated is as not necessarily as its own distinct thing, but as part of the bigger progress of medicine or what's, you know, the progress of a certain kind of medicine, right? Because we, we can define some of it as progress and some of it as not progress, what, because, of, because of what gets lost along the way. So one example is the development of the thermometer. And 
what happens when you can take a person's temperature with a thermometer as opposed to with your hands, because of course that's what was done. You know, there was no other way to take temperature. Then came the development of the stethoscope. But by the way, just to pause on this for a minute, because I, I would venture to guess that that is a lost art, that there were people who could, could actually take your temperature with their hand in a pretty accurate way. And probably the, that is not a skill that, that's very much available today because you don't need to have that skill. Yes. Yeah. And I think what happens is you start to see when those skills get lost and instead you have the tools to do it, then what happens is you look back in time and think, oh, but it's not accurate. You know, how can you tell anything from testing a pulse? Because it's not accurate. But to say that without having the skill of identifying those 26 categories or, you know, you're coming at it from assuming that because you're you, you should be able to check a pulse and know whatever there is to know, that it's not an art that needs to be developed. Same thing with feeling someone's forehead and what you would then combine that with, right? By looking at everything else like we do, you know, because of course, parents know that you can check a child's head for fever and also put that together with how their eyes look and what their complexion is like. And, you know, we do it all the time. We just somehow stop giving it credence when we enter the hospital doors. And we are not romanticizing here the 16th century. Nobody is, is recommending that we go back to that time. We're simply openly inquiring. Yeah, absolutely. The upside and the other perhaps concealed side of, of skills and capabilities lost because we've benefited so much from the advancement of technology, which is great. We're just looking at that in the fully most encompassing way we can. So what happens then as you proceed from that towards the 17th, 18th, 19th century industrial revolution comes online and people are moving increasingly from agricultural experience into urban centers and industrialization and all that is transforming the the nature and the quality of life and i'm venturing to guess also how we look at wellness and health and through that we are interested in that line of touch how touch plays through that or not whether it disappears and if it disappears then why yeah yeah, it's, I mean, so, so much happens. Of course, I mean, it totally accelerates from this period on where you have the thermometer, you have the stethoscope, you have things starting to become sciencey, right? In terms of diagnosing diseases, you have the development of the field of nosology, which is the classification of diseases, and things are becoming more, less about your personal interpretation and more about a universal agreement that this symptom, this symptom, this symptom means this, and we treat it this way. And the hands are becoming less of a um, healing tool. You know, no doctors are not laying on their hands to patients. That is not a thing that's going on in medicine. They will still diagnose, you know, they'll palpate, press on the abdomen, press here, press there. But the hands have really become diagnostic tools at this point, exclusively. In Western medicine, we're talking about, of course. But is it the same with nurses or nurses retain that capacity as, as part of their practice? So that comes along in a little while. In this trace of it, from my limited understanding of this, there's a lot more to understand, is that... But so let's just stay with what you described there. So you're describing we're getting empowered with technologies and tools, and doctors, the authority figures of health and wellness, retreat from the usage of touch, certainly as a healing property, and even on many aspects, retreating from using that as a diagnostic tool, because increasingly they are delegating that information to the various technologies that are coming online. Yes. And I talked to several medical historians and one of them, Jacqueline Duffin, which how she explained it to me was that at this time, it used to be that a patient would be the one to say, I'm sick. 
you know, help me because I'm sick. You have to help me. And which is, it's almost a hard mindset to imagine that we could, I, oh, I can say I'm sick. Like it's up to me to say that there's something wrong. I don't need you, doctor, so-and-so to confirm that. And that switches when, you know, really the stethoscope being a big marking point in this time, and then the progression toward more and more technology, it's the doctor becomes the authority. And that was what interested me about this, the King's Touch was like, right, there is this kind of thing through history of there is a person who has the capability to offer healing. And I, I put myself in your hands. And which is interesting, we say, I put myself in your hands. You know, there's so much language to yeah. do with touch, like keep in touch. I mean, there's so much. We, we lost know. that. Can I contact you? I mean, it's, you know, the, it, there's so much fascinating language around all of this where you just from that alone, you think there's something else going on here about our. The significance of touch in our shared experience yeah. and how it permeates the language in uh, ways that are far beyond the um, idea of physical touch. Yes, yes, absolutely. It is just something that is, there is, it leads me to think there's something about being human that is inextricably tied to something we discover about touch. And I don't know, you know, is it about physical touch? Is it about something else? But there's something we can't separate ourselves from it. And of course, when we see a little baby, it's very hard to resist the temptation to want to touch them. And you wonder why. Why are we so attracted to touch the baby? What is it that actually we're so interested to touch? Is it is it that we sense that there is something alive there that's so alive that perhaps is no longer as alive with us and we want to touch that aliveness through them? Yeah. I don't know. It's a fascinating element in this trace. A little total mini divergence. Fast forwarding to today, I was looking at uh, yesterday a photograph of a person, you know, all of these collections of photos of the year, photos that capture this year as we're speaking at the end of 2020 with this interview, that um, there was a person, a mother and daughter hugging through a, a curtain, you know, a pla- they had hung up a clothesline on a clothesline, a plastic curtain, and they're hugging. And, you know, I'm looking at it. I mean, I'm, I felt touched by it. <laughs> the context being because of the pandemic, they cannot actually touch each other. So they touch through a curtain. Yeah. And all the things that people have done, you know, grandparents doing the same thing, like, okay, just take this curtain down from my window so I can go hug my grandchild through it. That how, you know, how healing that has been for people during this time when touch is so limited to, you know, just the people that we live with, basically. So catch us up through this 19th century to 20th century. How is the story yeah. Evolved. So very significant moment that happens in the, like around 1910, where there's a man, the Flexner report comes out, where this person, this educator, Abraham Flexner, who was from Kentucky, was hired by the Carnegie Foundation to do a report on the state of medicine in the US. And so what's going on at the time is that there's still a lot of modalities being used in medicine that we would not think of as part of medicine today. For example, homeopathy, because with at the time, medical doctors were, uh, or we should say physicians, were still very frustrated with the fact that the medicines that they had to offer sometimes caused side effects that were just as bad as the problem itself. Right. So what's the point of curing something if the cure is just going to make you suffer just the same? And so people were really still open to what there wasn't a defined thing of this is medicine, this isn't medicine. And so this man went around. So it's interesting. He had been trained at Johns Hopkins University and which followed a research method that had been I don't know that Germany was the first place, but they certainly were sticking with it a lot. The scientific method linking laboratory research to clinical practice, that was not a connection 
necessarily for everyone at that time. But the Germans made that into a very strict practice from what I've learned from the medical historians that I've spoken with. And Flexner looked at, uh, I think it was 115 medical schools in the U.S. to see what was going on. Were they following these practices? You know, these what would be considered the best practices where medicine was concerned and found quite an array of things going on and that most medical schools and hospitals in the country were not following these kind of strict methods that were now thought to be the most reliable for building treatments upon. A lot, the the report was published in 1910 and a bunch of medical schools closed right after that, soon after that report came out because they just were not, they couldn't adjust, they couldn't adapt. And what you find, this report really marks a turning point in medicine where it becomes very much strictly adherent to the scientific method. All of the other things, homeopathy, light touch, healing touch, things like that are now considered quackery, you know, because he used that word quackery attached to those things. And, um, and I'm not saying whether they are or aren't, you know, in, in my work, it's not, you know, I'm looking at something separate, but he attaches that word. And this is when you start to find this gulf happen between practices that we would now consider wellness. And I know we'll, we'll get into that practices that would now come under this very big umbrella of wellness and what we would consider medicine. And they are two different things. Doctors don't call themselves healers, which is really interesting and weird if you stop and think about it. Like I never say I, I'm going to the healer today. You know, if I if for my routine physical, I'm not going to my healer. But why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't I say that? Of course I want the doctor to heal me. So there's this kind of gulf between healing and medicine, wellness and science. And the timing is, is fascinating. It's 1910. So we're coming into the, the rise of the, the momentous phase of industrialization and the rise of free market economies. And, and you wonder, I mean, this is the point where you can already save, follow the money. Who actually paid for his research? Right. Who actually paid for his report? And what was he actually serving? Was the report generated in service of the betterment of mankind in the broadest possible sense? Or was it a report that served as a tool to advance the position and the authority of the medical practice in the, within the strict definition mm-hmm. of, as you describe, the, the empirical, clinical-based approach? And I'm not taking a, a point of view. I'm, I'm not judging. I'm just inquiring that this is the point where you have different professions vying for position. It is interesting that chiropractic practice started earlier in the century, if I'm, in the 20th century, if I'm not mistaken, or, or late 19th century. And it needed to follow a, an interesting line to find itself approved into the mainstream, which other modalities that are further out on the edge were not able to enter that same approval, so to speak. Uh, but so, so how do you then narrate the story beyond that? Because we certainly see later in the 20th century, in the middle, certainly as we come to the 60s and the 70s, the resurgence of what is now not qualified as part of medicine, but people are simply asking for massage and, and for other approaches. People are asking to be touched in the broadest possible way to appreciate the idea of being asked to be touched. So in the 1960s, the World Health Organization put out a statement about wellness that was more than not being sick, that wellness was about, is your life progressing from one day to the next? And there was a few doctors that really took up that idea. 
and they were medical doctors. You know, one of them was deeply involved in bringing vital statistics into something tracked by public health. I'm forgetting his last name, Herb something, I'm sorry. And uh, there were a few others that worked with him and they said, yes, that's right. Being alive isn't just about not being sick. And there are things that we can do to be well and that, that life is moving on from one day to the next, that we are better tomorrow than we were today and that we aren't just not sick. That's a very important reframe of a paradigm. So from a paradigm that establishes itself, again, I will use the metaphor of the mechanistic view of the Industrial Revolution, where if you developed a machine and all the pieces needed to be working all right, and then there was a piece that got broken, you needed to fix the machine by replacing that piece. There was a time where human health was viewed in this way, and it was all about just return to normal operation. What you're saying is round about the mid-60s, which is very interesting for us because it converges with so many other traces in society and, and with the rise of post-modernity, essentially breaking from traditional and modern views and, and embracing more of the holistic range of the human experience. And you're saying there is this reframe that there is below the line, do the work you need to do to come back to foundational health. But then there is above the line wellness that you can develop and has a broader definition than just your vital signs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we can understand, you know, why medicine is about curing sickness in part through even just through understanding that hospitals were originally places for the poor to go to be healed from sickness. And they were religious institutions. The first hospitals were you know, run by nuns. They weren't run by doctors. And they were for people who couldn't afford to have you know, the, the doctor come to their house, for example. And so you know, there's many avenues that lead to medicine being about bringing you, like you said, back up to your basic line of health. Since you mentioned that aspect, I'm curious if, if you may not have the, the data point. But so there is a time where the doctor is indeed going to pay a house visit. Yeah. They, yeah. There is a point where that paradigm is reversed and you come to see the doctor. Um, yeah. Do you know that? What is the timeline? That would be an interesting data point I to find. Wondered. I've looked. I've looked. I've, I've tried to find, you know, when did house calls stop being a thing and doctors we're back in offices, but I don't know. I'll, I'm going to keep searching because I feel it must be out there. And, you know, it's often just a matter of entering the right search terms in the medical literature system. <laughs> um, I haven't found it yet, but I hope to. I think it would be really interesting to know, especially because, you know, then now you get to, you know, having your concierge doctor and boutique medicine is, you know, bringing it back to the, you know, the the thing you do if you're as wealthy as can be is that the doctor comes to you. Okay, well, so, so that's a segue to catch us up then from the 60s to now. What happened over the last 60 years? The premise being that with this expanding the paradigm of wellness and including in that the betterment of the, all aspects of the whole human experience, how is touch yeah. being re-emerging through yeah. inside that story? Yeah, it's a great question. And, uh, and it, it is a kind of explosion of things that happens with regard to wellness that we're all familiar with, right? So you start seeing independent wellness centers cropping up. You hear the term wellness. You know, it, it's, it's becoming a, a thing. Hospitals at, start adding wellness centers to themselves. And so essentially, there is an, a surge of interest in massage, in chiropractic medicine, in homeopathy, all kinds of things that we now put under this banner of wellness, aromatherapy, light therapy, sound therapy, Reiki, Reiki, bee venom therapy, 
so and lots of others that we've talked about, which I, which you know more about than I do, Feldenkrais and other methods of touching that are quite scientific in their own right, but are not considered part of medical science. And so where do these, these things all find a home under the wellness blanket? And what happens with hospitals is an assortment of things. You know, one is seeing this is something patients want. So why don't we offer it? You know, a sort of, if you're giving the benefit of the doubt to a hospital, to set, then, then that might be one way to look at the, you know, the center for wellness attached to, you know, this hospital well, or that hospital. Well, so part of it is following what the market wants, following what patients want. And, mm-hmm. and there is a part of it that is purely economic uh, opportunism, which is perfectly right because it follows what people want. I'm interested in looking at that and asking what, what is it telling us? What is it teaching us? What is the perception to be gleaned in this? And one perception that, that I get through the, your telling of the story is that essentially the, the human race, humanity, is crying to be touched. Mm-hmm. We have become a, in, through the computing revolution, with more people sitting just behind a screen sometime for all day long as the way of their interface with the world, you have a big part of humanity that is touch-deprived. And there is a cry for touch. And the medical profession is processing, grappling with how to regulate that and how to be the judge of what's to be approved and where are the charlatans and how do we separate those from each other? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and and that's... You know, one of the problems now is how do you deal with something that you can't measure? Because there are studies showing that people who pursue wellness modalities have shorter hospital stays and return to the hospital less often than people who don't. So what does medical science then do with that information when you cannot measure the things that people seem to be benefiting you know the ways in which people seem to benefit from touch some of it anyway can't be quantified yet anyway you know it it doesn't match the the tools that are considered the Mm. gold standard tools either that or are we asking the wrong questions or are we looking to measure the, in the wrong places, or or should we find new ways to measure the immeasurable but very strongly felt? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I so agree with that because it's it's uh, you know what's happened is it's almost like and again we are not here knocking medicine because it saves lives every day and we totally. live longer and we live healthier and we live happier on account of medicine every day, like for sure. But in this arena, there's almost a sense of having boxed itself into a corner where, well, now what? Because you have people saying, I want these things. And there's a, and the only thing you can do from that corner it's boxed into is say, it's almost like, uh, well, you're wrong about that. You don't really want that. You think you want that, but you don't. It's just the placebo effect. And or or whatever else it might be. And maybe sometimes it is. And there's reasons to care about that and to not care about that. You know, many people that I spoke with make really good points about, on the one hand, if there's no harm in something, then it's okay. Like what is, you know, doctors saying that, well, if my patient wants Reiki, fine, like what there, it's not harmful. But then there are other perspectives where people feel that there is harm done. And part of the people who do worry about the harm worry about the things that then sit on top of that. Like the what you mentioned before about how one of the problems on the wellness side of things is that it's really difficult to separate out real from not real, charlatan from not charlatan. And there are people who know things about touch and 
all of these modalities. And there are also, there's also still snake oil there, you know, and so that hasn't gone away. And so how do you bring your senses and your reasoning to the world of wellness, which seems to have a sort of, it has kind of propped itself up to some extent on the fact that it doesn't matter if you can't measure it because I say it's real. And that is, you know, okay and and has its problems as well. So then let me perhaps bring it to um, a concluding question, which is more inquiring about your intuition, not asking you to give us a foresight, but an, a sense of the future. It is interesting because you observed and you wrote how touch as a phenomenon permeates the language. And in the business world where I often engage with, in the other side of my life, with executives who run large operations and, and large companies, one of the ideas in the last couple of decades obviously became the idea of touchless operation, mm -hmm. by which they mean reducing the friction as much as possible and actually eliminating human touch and transferring as, as much as possible the operation of a company into an automated supply chain, which is a whole other story and a whole other trace and would be interesting to put one next to, to this trace, which creates wonderful possibilities and also some huge big problems because it, it is removing many people's jobs away by automating those jobs. But to borrow that idea and concept of touchless, the question is, will the future be more in that direction? Are we heading to a touchless future or are we heading into a touchful? I don't know if there is such a word, but I just made it up, a touchful future where we find a way to reintegrate touch and to reintegrate the, both the diagnostic and more perhaps critically, because now we have all those technological things that touch our skin and give the, the various uh, readings into uh, the cloud, and, and the cloud will tell us back uh, that we are about to get a heart attack before we even got the heart attack, because it knows about us all that is about to happen. But do you envision, do you imagine a future that's touchless, or do you see touch being reintegrated, or some combination of the two? Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, and it's a, it is a rich field for imagining what can be and also, you know, confronting the reality where we are. For example, there are many, many places now where a routine physical is done without touch at all. No touch at all. A person sometimes doesn't even need to disrobe anymore. Wow. And, yeah. And there's people who, like that. And there's people who really don't like that. And there are people who feel they're not being seen. You know, what, what is, how is this helping me? If you're, you're looking more at the computer than at my body and there's, you know, we didn't really go into this so much, but the, the level of intimacy between doctors and patients is, you know, very real. You know, you go to, that's the person you're supposed to be able to tell everything to. You know, when I think of my children going to the doctor, I want, you know, the, that's the person who's allowed to touch them anywhere, <laughs> you know, on their body besides a parent, you know, like that's the safe person. That's the safe place. You're supposed to be able to tell this person anything. And that relationship isn't necessarily like that anymore. And I think my sense is that at, that the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has brought us to a very fascinating crossroads where touch is concerned and touch in medicine because you have doctors i heard an anecdote that my editor had relayed about the first time a doctor went back to seeing patients in person and was uh listening to their heart and got tears in their eyes from that act as the doctor not the patient and Another doctor told me about standing next to his patients who were about to undergo surgery and how he would touch their feet. And there was no reason, there was no medical reason for him to touch their feet. He just wanted to. 
And he was saying to me how he feels like he's in a very privileged position because he can offer patients something that they really can't get very easily anywhere else right now. You know, someone who lives alone, how are they being touched by anyone right now? It's so painful to think about it. So it it seems to me that it's almost like the human race is going to need to make a decision at some point, or maybe, you know, a decision ends up, we end up falling into it by instinct or what about what is the place of touch in the future? And are we going to be happy removing touch so that we can have a sense of safety or, you know, is it going to be just like, well, we're better off. We're better off just not touching, you know, even if it isn't immediate threat to do so. Yeah. Or as you said earlier at the beginning, touch is one of the unique expressions of what being a human is. I don't think it will be erased. I really don't. I just don't see it. I see the opposite happening. I see it as there's an opening now for medicine and healing to stitch themselves back up together for this rift to not be so dire. And I have spoken with some doctors who, where that's happening, they're trying to do that. There's a place in uh, the University of Texas in Austin where they are, they've brought chiropractors onto the team. They bring, they have a masseuse on the team and it's not, there's not a wellness center. It's not like you have to go get your touch over there. It's all as one. It's involved because it involves a restructuring of insurance, for example, but it's very good for patients because it's putting the person at the center. It's not doing what's happened in medicine of what they call fee for service, you know, where you're paying for each thing that's done to you. Instead, you're you're paying to be taken care of, whatever, in whatever way that means, whatever is required. So perhaps a landing place for us in this is these last comments you're offering in which you are proposing a future of reintegration where touch is is reintegrated. And it may be, again, a fascinating perspective to consider this entire trace of the last three, four hundred years as a trace of separation in the first place Mm -hmm. and differentiation. But then the separation and the differentiation and the fragmentation at some point, perhaps that is part of the evolutionary cycle that we are in because we are seeing on completely other frontiers realms that were separated and now need to be reintegrated at at a different level, at a different octave. Yes. And perhaps this is um, is one frontier where this concept, this idea that we've gone through centuries of separation and fragmentations to now come into a point of reintegration. I may be offering a utopian, desirable future. I do believe the evidence is increasingly there that in our own lives, yesterday I was doing a whole other different trace and talked about how in my work with leaders, there was a time where people talked very much about the separation between work and life and the separation of your professional the professional side of life and your home life. And people talked about work-life balance and how outdated that concept became early in the, the early 2000s because you really needed to recognize that you were one life. And the reintegration of those were another frontier where you saw in the professional arena where people were discovering that when you reclaim your humanity in the work space, guess what? You are, you're thriving and succeeding more. And oh, by the way, it can be a smart idea to bring some of your professional side into your relationship and into your home life because you are more proficient and less reactive. So we're seeing in different aspects of life the, the journey through separations and reintegrations when we traced the last few centuries. And I, I feel that uh, the trace you offered us into touch is perhaps uh, an evidence of that same uh, meta theme in the evolutionary story. Yeah, absolutely. It does. It certainly feels that way. 
And I think, you know, if you were to look at, you know, well, what, what practically is needed to make that reintegration, you know, a little less judgment about what people do with their own lives, you know, would go a long way toward allowing that to happen. Perhaps we can pause this and leave that inquiry as a, as a possible uh, follow-up conversation. What needs to happen to enable integration? What is the development trace, the developmental, personal development, societal development, cultural development that are part of reintegration? is a delicious premise for uh, a follow-up conversation some other time. So thank you very much, uh, Jessica, for this uh, trace through time with touch. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Portals of Perception. If you're enjoying these dialogues, we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com slash portals. Visit portalsofperception.org for exclusive content. Please share this episode with a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.